I've never really been very good at choosing titles for sermons, hence why they're often not on the PowerPoint. Um, but this one, even though it didn't make it on there, I call Finding and Feeling True Financial Security. Finding and Feeling True Financial Security. Um, so before we open God's Word and read this together, would you join me in prayer again? Lord God, your word is powerful. Uh, It's living and it's active. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would apply it uh, in living and active ways among us. And so I pray that as I preach, um, that it wouldn't be with wise or persuasive words, like Paul said, but with a demonstration of your Spirit's power to speak to us and to connect these living words with our living experience so that we would indeed... um, be uh, yours and you would have your own way in us even as it relates to our relationship with money. We pray this in your name and for your glory, Jesus. Amen. So Luke chapter 12, 13 to 21. Who's got a page number? 1619? Thanks. You'll remember that um, the last few sermons that we've listened to and texts that we've looked at have been Jesus um, graciously, gently, and yet directly diagnosing spiritual sickness. Um, In an act of love, he has warned and said, Woe to you, Pharisees, teachers of the law, and um, just kind of laid their sin right out there. In a, in a hope that they would recognize it and turn from it. And so he's just finished um, saying to his disciples that they should watch out or look out. Remember last week for the yeast of the Pharisees? And um, he's warned them that they're going to be put on trial. And he said, don't worry. The Holy Spirit will teach you what you should say at that time. And on the heels of that, we read, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. 
word of God. I read uh, this past week, I read an op-ed article from the New York Times that was written in 2014 by a former Wall Street um, trader named Sam Polk. And I want to read to you a few lines. It's a a six-page article in which he details his story, his own journey um, into Wall Street and then out of it. But I want to read you a few, just a few lines that he writes, beginning with the very first line of the article. He says, In my last year on Wall Street, my bonus was $3.6 million, and I was angry because it wasn't big enough. I was 30 years old, had no children to raise, no debts to pay, no philanthropic goal in mind. And I was angry. Eight years earlier, I'd walked onto the trading floor at Credit Suisse First Boston to begin my summer internship. And then later he writes, After graduation, I got a job at a Bank of America by the grace of a managing director willing to take a chance on a kid who'd called him every day for three weeks. With a year of sobriety under my belt, I was sharp, clear-eyed, and hard-working. At the end of my first year, I was thrilled to receive a $40,000 bonus. For the first time in my life, I didn't have to check my balance before I withdrew. So, so he goes from being a college kid with no money and a really broken past to making his way uh, onto Wall Street and getting a job with his firm. And at the end of his first year, he gets this $40,000 check and it's like, wow, you know, there's money in the bank. Like, I don't have to make sure that it's not going to bounce. And he's elated, right? How do you get from that point to um, six, seven, eight years later uh, being angry that you just received a bonus check for $3.6 million, right? All, all, all of us here are going, hey, get, I'll take the 40000 Like, if he doesn't want the three point, I'll take the forty. That's That seems like a jackpot, doesn't it? He, he talks quite extensively about his journey with and his relationship to money and um, shares why $3.6 million wasn't good enough. And it wasn't just that somebody else was earning more because as he um, leaves Wall Street eventually, he sort of sobers up and realizes what's happening to him. He talks a little bit about his journey of leaving and he writes these words. He says, despite my realizations, it was incredibly difficult to leave. I was terrified of running out of money and foregoing future bonuses. So he's just had uh, a base salary of 1.5 and 1.5 million for a couple years in a row and a bonus of 3.6. Did you hear the man? I was terrified of running out of money and foregoing future bonuses. More than anything, I was afraid that five or ten years down the road I'd feel like an idiot for walking away from my one chance to be really important. What made it harder was that people thought I was crazy for thinking about leaving. That first year was really hard. I can 
I went through what I can only describe as withdrawal, waking up at nights, panicked about running out of money, scouring the headlines to see which of my old co-workers have gotten promoted. Over time, it got easier. I started to realize that maybe I had enough money, and if I needed to make more, I could, but my wealth addiction still hadn't completely gone away. Sometimes I still buy lottery tickets. So, I think listening to that, we can tell that this goes beyond the level of rationality, right? 3.6, well, one would be enough, well, half would be enough, well, what would be enough? He's not feeling, whatever he's got, he's not feeling like it's enough. And so there's this deep, deep insecurity in him which is exactly where we meet the man at the beginning of the text that we read this morning, when he says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He's not talking about a brother who won't give him anything. He's not talking about a situation in which his brother's getting everything, the whole inheritance, and he's left with nothing. And he's saying, like, Teacher, help me have something. He's not looking for scraps. This is a context in which, in Jewish society, the oldest brother would get a double share, a double portion of the inheritance. We read that in the Old Testament. The rest of the brothers would get a share. So he's got an inheritance coming. He's got a share coming. It's just, it's not enough. Enough for what? He's feeling insecure. And so Jesus tells this story to to draw out, I think, to draw out his insecurity and draw attention to where his hope is placed. And so Jesus doesn't, he doesn't even listen to him. He says, man, who pointed me an arbiter or a judge? Which is really interesting because Jesus is the judge. But in this situation, he's saying, he's saying, hey, you're trying to use me. You're recognizing my authority and you're trying to use me for your good. We never do that. We never pray that way. But Jesus, Jesus again, lovingly diagnoses uh, what's really in the heart. And he says, hey, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Because life isn't about the amount, the abundance of things or of possessions. And then he says, he tells this, this parable. And he says, a certain rich man... The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thinks to himself, what shall I do? I've got, listen to all the eyes in here, okay? What shall I do? I have no place to store all my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God, and that's the first reference to God, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? Jesus warns about greed. And greed, greed is, 
an overwhelming or a strong or an excessive urge to have more, not just more, but more than we really need. Greed is this desire to have more than we really need. And so the question is begged, need for what? Need for what? Well, I, I need clothes and I need food and in Michigan I need a place to stay at least in eight months of the year. Well, beyond that, need for what? I think the need that most of us have is a need to feel secure, a need to feel like we don't need to worry about our future. And so I I think one thing that's really poignant about this um, parable that Jesus tells, and I think it's purposeful, is that it's a rich man. Because Jesus isn't highlighting the fact that he's rich as a bad thing. He doesn't call attention to the fact that he's rich. It's the fact that he's rich and then his ground yields this abundant harvest and it's all I and me and I and there is a total absence of thankfulness, a total absence of awareness of where his wealth has come from and of his connectedness with those around him. So it's not his wealth that's the problem. It's something in his heart. It's his relationship to wealth. It's that this man is not feeling secure. This man who's already rich is not feeling secure yet. For him, there's got to be something else, something more, some greater amount of money that he feels is going to bring him security. And so that really begs the question for all of us sitting here this morning, how much is enough to make us feel secure? And how do we tell, friends, sitting here this morning, if our own hearts are following our lips, because all of our lips say, I trust in God. I trust in God. With all my heart, says the proverb. But how do we know if our Um, hearts really don't find security in the check that's coming, the job I have, the bank balance, the size of the, or lack thereof, of the nest egg that's planned for retirement. How do we know that? Because here's the thing. Most of the time, you don't really know until some experience shows you. I'll, I'll give you an example of that. I would have told you for many, many, many years that I believed in the sovereignty of God. By that I mean that he was in control of all things. My life was in his hands and he knew the number of my days. And then, in the fall of 2004, when I was teaching in China, a student and I took a bike trip over a holiday up to the mountains. And so we biked about 50 miles and then we reached kind of the base Uh, where we were going to have to take a bus up into the mountains. And so the next day we take a bus and uh, we are sitting on the back of probably something the length of the size of a city bus and this bus driver had a death wish. Okay, so the roads are S-curved, you know, 
uh, what do you call it, switchbacks, back and forth up the mountain. And you cannot see, you can't see 60 yards in front of you at, at any given time. I mean, it's just back and forth and up. And we are on the side of um, ravine, ravine, ravine. Now, here's the worst part. He's passing people uphill, around curves. Anybody came going too fast, and it would have been like that. And we had multiple points where he's passing people uphill, and somebody's coming, and we have just enough time to... Sitting in the back of that bus, for the first time, I had to confront, God, do I really trust? Do I really trust that my life and my times are in your hands? Because I read in the news about Chinese buses that went over the side of hills, and I felt like I'm just about to be on one of these. So, so how, friends, how do we know this morning about our heart's relationship to pennies and dollars and bank balances? What? Let's just ask a few what-if questions uh, about our financial bus. Let's ask, what if our government decides in their wisdom, to add another 10 or $16 trillion to our national debt. And finally, the system goes and cracks, and they can't issue Social Security checks anymore. What's our, when that news comes out, what's our heart doing? What if the economy tanks again and, and we go into a recession that's worse than 2008 and, and um, we lose our job? Or for the young people, there are no jobs to be had. And we've got um, college debt to pay. So it doesn't help that we can stay in mom and dad's basement because the government's calling. I've got college debt. And... And beyond that, I've got a relationship and I want to get married and we want to think about having kids and I can't even find a job. What if, I, what if we wake up tomorrow and we find that the bank or the company that we've been trusting to manage our money has been taking unnecessary risks and driven themselves into bankruptcy? And so 30 or 40 years of saving and retirement planning is gone, just like that. The job that, that we felt was so secure, that we're so glad to have, we go into work on Monday morning, and the boss says, I'm really sorry, you're a good employee, we love you here, uh, but we just have to cut three positions, and yours is one of them. Well, what's our heart doing? In some of those situations, there's sadness that's genuine and, and fair. And there's anger, I think, over injustice. But I'm not looking at the anger, uh, lack thereof spectrum. I'm not looking at the sadness spectrum. I'm looking at peace and anxiety and the heart's rest, the heart's basic posture of feeling secure. How secure do we feel? Sarah Young, the author of a, a devotional called Jesus Calling, says this. 
She says the truth that the truth is that self-sufficiency, the ability to provide for ourselves, is really a myth. It's a myth perpetuated by pride and temporary success. Health and wealth can disappear instantly, as can life itself. Job says, Naked I came into the world. Naked I'm going to leave this world. And the truth, friends, and the good news for us this morning is that in between birth and death, that there is the possibility of life, a kind of life that is deep, constant, peaceful, and secure because it's the kind of life that doesn't attach itself to or consist in the abundance of things. Whether it's a small abundance of things or a large one, it does not attach its sense of security and personal well-being to whether those things are there or not. It's the kind of life that is like this. It's like a, uh, the life whereby God feeds you manna in the desert for 40 years. What is it like to live in a, a, a literal physical desert and not be able to do anything to provide for yourselves and yet every morning, six days a week, not seven, for 40 years, you wake up and there's something for you to eat. The illusion, let's go back to Sarah Young's words, is that we're in a different place. The illusion, because we're not in a physical desert, because our environment around us seems to be one where we have control, we think we have control, is that we provide the things that we receive. But the truth is that for children of God, we're always eating manna from his hands. And he's always willing and able to provide. Because we live the same life that the people or the children of God have always lived. And that life is a life of provision from and by God the Father. It's a life of supernatural provision. He says, my children will lack nothing. The manna will always be there. It's a life where God is... Our God, our Father, is willing and able to do the impossible at any time. So this morning I was reading Acts 12. And Peter is in prison. And they've got four sets of four guards around him. And they've got shackles on his wrists and double gates to get out of the jail and another for the city. That's impossible. That's like, I cannot provide for myself kind of reality, right? God sends an angel. God sends an angel. Here you go. Like the angel along the road that gave you money. That's normal. That's not strange. That's normal. That's normal for life in the kingdom of God. That God would come into a seemingly impossible, humanly impossible situation and he would make provision because God takes care of his children. He feeds them manna 
every day. Angels. It's a life where, um, as, as the Lord reminded us last week through Pastor Gina, his eyes are on the sparrows. Where his eyes are on those really small, unnoticeable, difficult to see birds that we hardly pay any attention to. His eyes are on them. How much more are not his eyes on us? There was a story I've told you before that Ann and I love to read missionary biographies. I'm not remembering the name of the missionary, but uh, there was a story that was told about him where he was traveling. He was um, kind of on a preaching circuit in rural Australia where he was planting churches, starting new works, and he had one person with him. And uh, they ran out of food, literally none. And his assistant came and said to him, hey, we're out of food. And he said, okay, set the table for lunch. And his assistant's like, well, what do you mean set the table? I just told you we don't have food. He said, no, 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 not the food. Set the plates. Put the plates in the, put the cup and put the cutlery out. You know, okay. Well, you know the end of the story. They sit down for lunch. Nothing's there. They bow their heads. They thank the Lord for food. And um, as they finish thanking the Lord for food, uprides somebody and drops off a meal. That's normal. Told you before about Jesus Abbey in South Korea where we were invited to teach uh, where I, last year. And uh, the founder of Jesus Abbey, Archer Torrey, in, I think it was 1967, second year up in the Abbey in the rural mountains of northern South Korea, nothing around, brutal cold winter, and they've got a group of about 40 people gathered, the normal community, but then also some U.S. soldiers that are stationed in Korea decided to come visit them, and uh, a massive winter storm hits, and, you know, three, four feet of snow, nobody can get in or out, they're down to the last of the kimchi. I mean, these guys can't even stand kimchi to begin with, but the rice is gone. Kimchi's cabbage, spice-pickled cabbage. And, and the soldiers are griping and they're complaining and they're down to the last of the kimchi. And, uh, and what do we do? Archer says, I don't know, I think the Lord's calling us to fast. <laughs> well, let's fast and pray. And the soldiers just said to him, and these guys are Christians, they said, you're nuts. We're calling and we're getting emergency helicopters in here to get us out. I mean, this is crazy. And he says, don't you think the Lord will provide? Let's pray. And so they pray and they go to sleep. They eat their last meal and they go to sleep. And they wake up the next morning and on the front porch of this abbey is a five-pound bag of rice sitting in the snow with no footprints leading up to the bag of rice. The life that we live is the kind of life as children of God where this kind of provision is always possible, is never not normal because God takes care of his children. But the question for us this morning is whether we're living that kind of life, whether our heart is really postured before God with that kind of security. Because the scriptures speak constantly, regularly about the provision of God. Psalm 145 is one of them. 
talks about God knowing our needs, answering those who cry out to him. So the question for us this morning is not what's true in terms of what the scriptures say. The question is uh, where our hearts are in terms of, let me use this metaphor image, um, the move from orphanhood to um, children of God. Because orphans are alone. Orphans are afraid of being alone and being abandoned. Orphans have to provide for themselves. Children are cared for, loved, provided for, secure and significant. And children don't have to worry when they have really good parents. Right? So our hearts... We're asking, Lord, shine your searchlight on our hearts and just show us, uh, show us how much anxiety there is about uh, whatever that number is for us. You know, some of us have a maybe a magic retirement number that we're aiming for. Some of us have, uh, I need this amount of salary to be able to pay off my debt. Others of us are going, Oh God, I need this amount of money just to get to the end of the week. All of us have something to do with numbers and our heart and all of us are invited to this place of deep deep security as children of God but as we're invited there I think the thing that's most important for us to remember this morning is that that life that I've been describing that 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 is um, for all children of God is not one that we have to muster up enough strength to live on our own it's a life that's been pioneered for us by Jesus. He shows us the way, right? He says, I am the way. He shows us the way to this life. And so we look at him and he shows us the one, he's the one who's willing to lay aside all of the treasure of heaven. He has everything, is ever adored and worshipped It's a beautiful place, unspoiled by evil or darkness. And he lays it all aside. For love, yes. Yes, for love's sake. But also because he trusts his father. That when his father sends him and asks him to go, and not just to go to this earth, but to go to a place of giving up everything, that we find him in that posture in the garden saying, Father, If it be your will, take this cup from me. But not your will, not my will, but yours be done. Right? Such deep trust in the provision of God that he would give everything, even unto death. He pioneers the way for us. He pioneers this life of childlike trust. And he's in us. He's in us, ever willing, at a moment's notice, to kindle within us that same childlike faith. And it's his life kindled within us that leads us to not have to reach the end of this passage and these words about judgment for those who aren't rich to God and and start scrambling and going, oh, okay, uh, I don't want to face judgment. What does it mean to be rich toward God and trying to come up with some kind of standard or like number? That would be like living under the law. Like there's this set amount that I need to do to please God. That's not the life that we see in Jesus. In Jesus we see uh, the joyful giving of everything. And so Jesus in us 
it really, really empowers us to radical generosity. Jesus empowers us to a different kind of foolishness. Right? This man's a fool because he's trying to store up. Well, we become fools of a different kind. Paul says the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is foolishness to the world, to the Greeks. They don't get it. Actually, it's foolishness to the Jews, right? No, stumbling block to the Jews. Foolishness to the Greeks. Thanks. Uh, but it's foolishness because it doesn't make sense. They don't get it, right? That, that someone who's God would come and give up his life. But that empowers a different kind of foolishness in us, one that the world also doesn't understand, that we would not think first and only of ourselves in storing up uh, to protect our future like this man. I will make myself secure, but that we would trust God enough to live with levels of generosity that would allow us to care for each other as we do in this place. But even beyond each other, to give and to care at a level that, well, that, that just doesn't make sense. Don't you realize how that's going to affect your, don't you, you only have so much that makes sense. But when we start with Jesus, his life, he empowers us to trust. He reminds us that he is the manna. He reminds us that we're not going to go without. And he strengthens us to a life of radical generosity. So he's going to speak to us to more, more next week about that, about not worrying, about selling treasure, giving it. But we're going to end this week just by asking Lord to, the Lord to kindle within us that security, that deep, deep security that doesn't, no matter what happens, no matter what happens. And actually, I want to end with a short story, I think, that really pictures that security well. I was reminded of it yesterday at um, Neil and Anna's wedding. I was talking to uh, the Blake boy's dad, Harley, and um, he was telling me about um, Travis and Amanda's wedding. And he was sharing Amanda's words, and I talked to Amanda last night, and she said I could share this story. You, you might remember that last year, um, when Travis and Amanda got married in October, it was supposed to be really beautiful, but it was a day that was like, what, 30-something degrees, and it was rainy, right? We can hardly believe that Neil and Anna got a 48-degree day in February, and they had 30-something in October. But it was, this, it was frigid. It was an outdoor wedding, um, covered, but open sides. I was wearing like long underwear and three, four layers, and these girls were up there in short-sleeved dresses. And, I mean, the rain's coming in sideways. It is freezing. And I'm thinking, how are they standing there? And Amanda said, she said it was the most amazing thing that she too was worried about that cold, but the moment she got into the aisle and into the moment and like locked onto the, the presence of God uniting her and Travis and what God was doing in that holy, beautiful moment, it was like all else just kind of faded away. She said it was literally like I was, by the, by the warmth of what God was doing, I was buffered against the rain and the wind and everything else. I was present, warm and present in that moment with God and what he was doing in us. And I thought when I heard that last night, and she said, for me it's just become a picture of life. And I thought, amen. 
That's life as a child of God. That the wind and the rain and the storms and the chaos of living in this broken, sin-stained world in which many, many things are uncertain can rage all around us. But Jesus in us produces such confidence and security that we often don't even feel it. That we can come to a place where we're so buffered Because what's really real is God our Father, Jesus through the Spirit in us, and this new eternal life that we have in Him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that what we feel in our hearts right now, listening to Your Word, is what You desire for us to live with always. And so, Lord, we pray by Your Spirit, bring um, this truth, bring the experience of sonship and daughtership um, so to bear on our hearts and lives that always we live in this place of deep and abiding trust, so secure in you, and Lord, um, empowered to give and to live radically generous in a way that will impact the world around us for you and for your glory. Lord, thank you that you are doing that and that you will do that in our lives. And now hear our continued prayer as we sing to you in response, Jesus. Amen. Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. As you fix your eyes on the Lord in this coming week, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace now and forevermore. Amen. God from